At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. We are in Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. It's great to be here with you this morning, be able to worship, worship our God. It's great for us to be quieting our hearts, stilling our minds to receive His Word. We get to take communion together uh, after the sermon, which is always a wonderful, wonderful meal and treat for us. Lamentations 3, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice to come together as your people. We come with thanksgiving as the scriptures instruct us in all circumstances, in grief and in glory, still great is your faithfulness. Lord, increase our trust in you. Thank you for the gift of the scriptures by which you make known to us our Savior, by which you reveal truth to us, by which you dispense grace to us, by which you make us courageous and truthful and compassionate, patient. You give us endurance, God, and we need endurance to be able to fight the good fight of the faith until the end. Come, come and illumine our minds by means of this word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Lamentations 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. The word of the Lord. A pastor who was speaking to a group of us about lamentations shared a very difficult and personal event in his and his wife's life. Um, During their first pregnancy, uh, the baby's heart stopped beating at week 39. And then for the second pregnancy, they, went, they were going to a doctor for a doctor's visit, and the doctor said to them, um, I know your pregnancy numbers look good, but there is no baby. And so coming home from this devastating news, the wife said this in prayer, God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today. Have you ever felt that way toward God? Have you ever said anything like that to God? God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today. That kind of emotion is precisely what we're addressing in this series, Good Morning, taking our sorrow to the Savior. We said two weeks ago that lament is in the Bible as your permission to to go to God and take to God your grief in the moments when your emotions are the strongest, when the pain is the strongest, and give him your complaint. Lament is not what we say years later. 
in retrospect, with the advantage of time on our side and perspective and healing and even joy restored because blessing has come. No, lament is what that wife said on hearing dream-shattering news. We've also said that our culture does not do well with grief. You know, we, we love small talk. You know, we love to keep our interaction, interactions brief and neat. You know, the, the weather, vacation, sports. Let's talk about those things. Politics, religion, money. Don't you dare. I know when we meet or greet someone and uh, we know we only have a few minutes to interact with them or the relationship is not very deep, you know, we're not going to share our deepest wounds with them, right? Uh, so our superficiality is in part pragmatic, right? It wouldn't go over very well if when you're at work and you see someone on the elevator and you say to them, hi, how you doing? And they said to you, I am confused, perplexed, and distraught. I am sad beyond words and angry. How are you doing? Right? That would not, you would like steer clear of that person next time. You know, you see them in the elevator, like, I'm taking the stairs today. You know, I need, I need the steps anyway. And so there's a time, there's a place for these kinds of conversations. The problem is when there is no place or time or safe person with whom to have these conversations. And we need these conversations because the human experience has range, range. You know, there are weddings. I did one yesterday. It was wonderful. But there's also funerals. But which one do we prefer? The author of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7 says, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. He's saying better to go to a funeral than to a wedding. Why? Why does he say that? Was he depressed? Maybe. But I think there's great wisdom for us here. Pain, pain makes us far more compassionate than does sitting or sipping piña coladas at the beach. Right? We're going to develop compassion in suffering. You know, the Lego movie back in 2014 was a big hit, as was its smash hit, you know, the song, Everything is Awesome. Do you guys remember this song? You know, everything is awesome, you know. Our culture, in our culture, it's very easy for a middle class, uh, in our middle class way of living, it's very easy for our children to believe that success means building an everything is awesome life. And as parents, we can make that our goal. We're going to build an everything is awesome life for our children. But there's a problem. You can't just show your children the paint job uh, on the car of life. Show them under the hood. Show them the undercarriage. Children need to uh, face, be, be brought to the reality of the hardships of life while they still have you with them. So you can explain difficulty to them. And you're by their side and you can explain it to them with hope, hope in God. You see, think of a vaccine. What do vaccines do? They actually give us the illness, right? The virus in small doses that actually make us stronger. And so your children, our children and, and, and us need books like Lamentations that make us face Come face to face with reality, with the hardship of living in a world that, a fallen world that has war and famine and disease and loss. Such exposure is actually going to make us stronger, but we're also going to develop empathy, empathy. And without empathy, our footprint for good in the world will be very small. I mean, why do you think that uh, the tensions in our country are just at a boiling point? Partly because we 
are not good at empathy. We're great at rage. Great, we do rage really well. Not so good with empathy. And so today we get into chapter three of this poem of affliction. And we're gonna read uh, those words, those famous words that I'm sure you've heard and you've sung. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are what? New every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Such great lines. But before we get to them, we need to travel once again through other words and lines from the same author. Lines that are less memorable, but just as important in what they teach us. Did you know that the same author that penned those famous lines was speaking from a place of total loss in the midst of great affliction? As someone who is not afraid to acknowledge his affliction. And that's the first thing that he teaches us today. Acknowledge your affliction. Own it. See it. Feel it. Bring it to God. Now, remember that these piercing words come in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, after Babylon came in and besieged the city and took the, the survivors into exile, the survivors of Judah into exile. Now, the author is not confused as to why such affliction has come to God's people. He knows very well, God has sent Babylon uh, to punish Israel for their sins. So he's not confused about this. And yet he still registers his pain, his complaint, because suffering that is so profound must be heard and not forgotten. And so in the first few verses here, what we see is actually the, the horror of having the protection of God removed from the people of God. And as a matter of fact, God becomes the aggressor. So we're gonna see God as a vicious shepherd a cruel jailer, a terrifying predator, and a skilled hunter. First, the vicious shepherd. Look at verse one. The writer says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Now, we love Psalm 23, don't we? We, we? we know it. We love it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall no want. He leads me. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That psalm is speaking of this covenant relationship between God and his people. A covenant relationship of peace and provision and protection. God is the shepherd and we are the sheep. It's the most famous, most beloved psalm. But what happens when the shepherd's anger is kindled? What happens then? The sheep experience the rod of his wrath. That's what the psalmist says, or the poet rather, says here in Lamentations 3 and verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. In Psalm 23, which David penned some 400 years earlier, the rod of the, God's rod and staff, what do they do? The rod, your rod and your staff, they what? Yes, they comfort me. They comfort me, not here. You see, the shepherd's rod, which traditionally was used to beat animals away from the sheep, is now used 
on the sheep. Instead of a shepherd that leads the sheep to light and sunshine, in verse 2, he says that this shepherd has driven and brought the sheep into darkness without any light. The shepherd's gentle, caring hands, in verse 3, have turned against the sheep again and again all the day long. Shepherds would bind up the injured, right? They would go and they would find the lambs that were injured and they would bind them up so they could heal. Not here. In verse 4, he has broken my bones. He has broken my bones. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's Psalm 23. That's not here. Verses 5 and 6 speak of how the shepherd actually surrounds the sheep with bitterness and tribulation and darkness. So this is gruesome. It's one thing for your protection to be gone. It's another thing for your protector to become your aggressor. So that's the vicious shepherd. Let's look at the cruel jailer in verse 7. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. So now the poet describes himself as being walled about so that he cannot escape. But as we said two weeks ago, he makes God the agent of the action. He says, he, God, walled me about. He made my chains heavy. The walls are so thick that his cries for help are in vain because God is not answering his prayer. And then there are so many scriptures where God promises. He promises to, um, to make our paths straight, but not here. It says, he has made my paths crooked. Crooked. Have you ever felt your ways are blocked by God? God is blocking you? In the New Testament, James and the apostle Peter tell us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Surely Israel's pride at this time in their history has brought on God's opposition. Now we have a terrifying predator. Uh, Lamentations 3 verse 10. He says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Now we know that King David had spoken had celebrated how God had delivered him. He celebrated the deliverance from God, from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear. Remember this in the Goliath story? Well, now it is God himself who's become the lion, who's become the bear, lying in wait for the man. He says, he tore me to pieces. And then finally, we have the skilled hunter in verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Can you imagine the dread of having God's bow bent and aimed at you as the target? That's what Jerusalem experienced. That's what he's saying. If you have Jerusalem there in their land of promise and the bow of God aimed, the arrow aimed at him, at them. That's what the poet experienced. That's the bitter feeling from which he is writing. Do you hear the raw emotion? Do you see the despair in his eye? He says, he drove into my kidneys the arrows from his quiver. 
Now, the poet here describes himself in this chapter as the man. The man. What man is this? It's the average man. It's the average person that experienced this kind of pain and affliction that Lady Zion has been mourning. We saw her do this in chapters one and two. Now he takes the mic, so to speak, the author who's, who's seen all of this. And now he's expressing his level of anguish. This man has been brought to darkness, broken, walled up, chained, blocked, torn to pieces, pierced with arrows, the vicious shepherd, the cruel jailer, the terrifying predator, the skilled hunter. God has brought affliction under the rod of his wrath. This is not the God that you hear about in Sunday school. And I want to say two things about this difficult side of the God of Scripture. The first thing is that we can say with certainty that God became Israel's enemy, that God sent Babylon with the rod of his wrath to punish them for their sins because scripture tells us so word for word in this book and all through the prophets. So we can speak about that with great certainty. However, we do not dare say that when suffering comes into another person's life or into a nation, that that is the judgment of God because of their sin. We do not dare say that. That would be presumption of the highest order. We do not know what God is doing, when and for what purposes. The combination of God's sovereignty and his providence and um, uh, live in a fallen world under a curse and the cosmic powers of evil at work in the world amounts to all kinds of hardship befalling the human race. And when we face suffering, we must speak with empathy and without an ounce of contempt and without speaking like we know more than we do. Christians have not always done that well. It's the first thing. But the second thing is that we know from Scripture that the judgment of God will fall on humankind with finality and great force as the waters of the flood came over the people of Noah's time and submerged the earth. We know this. There are clear examples of judgment in Scripture where that judgment was first merely just words, but they were God's words, and God's words are, are as veritable as reality. It's just a matter of time before those words of God come off the page and engulf the earth. I say that because there are many means by which God motivates us to trust and obedience. There are many ways that God does this. And if you want to know what God is doing in your life right now, what he's up to, whatever the specifics, what God is always after is our trust through the hard things of life, through the great things of life. What God is after in our lives is trust, to deepen our trust in him, to bring us to a place where we trust him so that we are glad to obey him because in that is the path to life. So there are many ways that God brings about that trust and obedience in us. Grace is one of them. Eternal life is one of them, right? The hope of eternal life. Shalom is one of them. The prosperity and peace and health that God alone can bring. All of those things are ways that he motivates us to that deeper trust. But judgment is also one of them. And yet judgment is not a concept or reality that the human heart likes or that our culture likes. But here's the thing. There are many good reasons why I want to be a good citizen and follow the law. All kinds of good good reasons. One of them is I don't want to go to jail. 
right? That's a deterrent. I see that, I'm like, I don't want to go there. And so it motivates me to want to be a good citizen. And you see, likewise, when we read of this side of God, which is his holiness and action against sin and evil, we should tremble. We should tremble. And we should repent for not being more eager ambassadors to people who have the judgment of God hanging over them. And we should melt with gratitude for our Savior. That's what reading this kind of hard, hard passage should do in us. Okay, back to the poem. We're getting close here to rock bottom. Look at verse 14. He goes on, I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So this man says he's become the laughingstock of all people, the object of taunts and ridicule. He says that God has filled him with bitterness. He says my endurance has perished. He says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel. I mean, what an image, total shame and destitution. He has no peace. He says he's forgotten what happiness is. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having nothing that brings relief, nothing that brings joy, nothing that takes your mind off of the pain and devastation? Can you imagine someone talking to you about happiness and you look at them and you're dead serious and you say, what is that? Happiness? What are you talking about? He says, I've forgotten what happiness is. And in that state, he says, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. There it is, rock bottom. Doesn't get any worse than that. He says his endurance is gone. He has no hope from God. We hear him knocking on death's door. Except that he made a mistake. If his goal was to give up, if his point is that the distance between him and God is far too great, if he's simply done with the covenant God, then he made a mistake. The mistake is that at the end of verse 18, he brings up for the very first time in this chapter, the covenant name of God. Did you see that? Did you catch that? The whole chapter from the very first verse, he's been talking about God, but he's been talking about him by calling him he. He, he, he did this, he did that. But now when he gets to the end of verse 18, he says, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Oh, it's a negative statement. It's a statement about the lack of hope from the Lord, but it doesn't matter because the name of the Lord is power. The name of the Lord is life. The name of the Lord on our lips brings God into the orbit of our confused minds and bereft hearts. And that's enough for God to begin to transform our perspective, which is what we need. When we're in the midst of piercing, devastating, suffering and loss, what we need is perspective. What we need is to remember that God is still God. And so remember your God. Remember your God. Look at verse 19. 
Remember my affliction and my wanderings, my wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Okay, the turn. The turn starts to happen here. The turn that brings hope in the midst of gloom, uh, gloom rather, begins to take shape here. And I want you to not miss how the poet gets to hope. How does he do that? Because he doesn't get there by denying his suffering. He doesn't get there by denying his confusion. He doesn't get there by talking to God in platitudes and generic statements devoid of honesty and truth. No, he fully felt the fury of God. And he oscillated between affirming the righteousness of God in his justice and sitting in disbelief at the depth and length of his affliction. He says first, Lord, you are in the right. But then he says, my soul, my soul continually wonders. I'm in wonders. My soul remembers my affliction, my wonderings. They are wormwood and gall, bitter. He remembers the bitterness. You see, in our everything is awesome culture, we are incapable of sitting with our grief of lying down with the bitterness of our affliction, facing the ground, brought low, all the while talking to God, begging him to hear us. We can't do it. You know what we do? We turn from God. We turn away from God. Either everything is awesome, and we say, I love God, and God loves me, or actual life happens with all the pain that it brings. And then we say, where were you, God? What's the point? I don't even need you. I don't even like you. That's what we do. It's one or the other. Everything is rosy as we expected things to go from strength to strength. God is awesome. I love him. Or actual life, hard things come to all of us. And then we're like, forget God. That's not how Lamentations gets to hope. The way the Lamentations gets to hope is by embracing both the severity and the kindness of God. Because that's the approach that will help you when your soul is continually and vividly and painfully bowed down within you. That's the approach that will allow you when your soul is down there at the bottom to do the one thing. The one thing that you must do if you're not just going to simply swirl in a slush of self-pity and sorrow. And that one thing is in verse 21. In verse 20, he says, my soul is continually bowed down within me. But then in verse 21, he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. More literally, he says, this I bring back to my heart. You see, the heart in Hebrew thought refers to the seat, the essence of who we are. This is where the will lives. And so the poet is acknowledging that yes, his emotions are raging like an indomitable ocean, but he strains his will to do something else. He strains his will to make something else more prominent, something that will give him hope where he has no hope. What is that? Because he says, this I bring to mind. This I return to my heart. What is this? The steadfast love 
of the Lord. That's it. And here we get to those words, those words that I know you've heard, that I know you've sung. Here they are. But it was important for us to travel through this very difficult chapter of scripture and know how the author got there because he's not done. There's more grief. There's more affliction he's gonna give voice to in the rest of chapter three, in chapter four, in chapter five. Nothing has changed. Jerusalem is still destitute. The people are dead or gone. It's bad. It's bad. It's still bad. But it's important for us to see how he got here. What is this thing that he brings in the midst of such loss? What is this that he brings to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord. Read with me, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Did you know that? Did you know today when you woke up that God's mercies to you are new today? If you're in Christ with him, did you know this? Wherever you were last night, whatever you did this past week, today you woke up, his mercies are new and tomorrow they'll be new again. What are you gonna do with those mercies? His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amazing. God is still God. This is what he brings back to his heart. He goes back to that oldest, deepest, most profound statement about the character of God that Israel possessed. It's how God revealed himself to Moses back at Sinai, Exodus 34. Listen to what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's what he brought back to his heart, to his mind, the steadfast love of the Lord. He remembered this confession of faith that they had had for hundreds of years. No one else in the world had it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. And he had to remember that in the midst of total loss. But this same God is also slow to anger, slow to anger, slow, like 800 years slow. For centuries, he had been sending prophet after prophet to get Israel to change their ways, to turn back to God. They did not heed the warnings, the promises. Slow to anger also means that his anger can be and actually is kindled by injustice and wickedness and sin. That's who God is. And the poet knows that Judah has now received the wrath of God in full. He knows that they have paid for their transgressions. But he also knows 
That while God visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation, he shows steadfast love to the thousands. And so that's what he calls to mind. That's what he brings back to his heart. The steadfast love of the Lord never, never ceases. His mercies never, never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then he breaks off from that declaration and just speaks straight to God. Great is your faithfulness. You see, lament allows us to hope. Lament allows us to hope. The poet went from, I have no hope from the Lord, to therefore I will hope in him. How? How? What changed? Jerusalem is still destitute in ruins. The horrific things that he has spoken about and will continue to speak about are still there all around him. Smoke. So what changed? What changed it was his perspective. What changed was that he brought the covenant God to his mind, to his heart. He brought to himself the covenant promises of God that the Lord, his steadfast love never fails. He says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. You see, for Israel, their portion that God had given them was the land with all of his protection, all its promise. But now with the land lost because of disobedience, the poet, the author is able to say, you, O Lord, are my portion. Church, listen to me. In life, we all journey downward. Every one of us does. As much as we'd like to think that in life we're just going to go from strength to strength, from births to weddings, in reality we stumble from weakness to weakness, funerals and deaths. And the, the rock that we hit on that journey downward, the kind of rock that is unshakable, indestructible, eternally durable, is only one. And it's a confession. The confession is, the Lord is my portion. That's it. That's the confession. And you know what? God will bring us to that place many times throughout our lives. Sometimes the intensity will be like, I can't take it anymore. Sometimes it will not be as intense, but the goal is going to be the same. Can you say, the Lord is my portion? Can you say it through tears? That's when it gets tested. It's not, do you believe it up here? It's not, did your parents believe this and give it to you? Is this a habit that you've kind of had throughout your life? No, when everything is gone, can you say it? And when everything that's good in life you've tasted, the beautiful woman, the amazing man, the career, the acclaim, all of that, the money, the trips, whatever. When you've looked at all of that and drunk all of that, can you say, you know what? That's nothing. The Lord is my portion. That's what my soul says. This is not just what I think on Sunday mornings. No, this is when you peel me away and you keep peeling and peeling and peeling away and there's pain that comes with all of that. When you get to the core of what John Morales is, what you find is what you find. The Lord is my portion. 
That is the challenge of our faith, you guys. There's a story of a man from Rwanda following the genocide of 1994. He had lost everything. His family, gone. His house, gone. He was sitting by the roadside. And he said something unforgettable. He said, I never knew Jesus was all I needed till Jesus was all I had. That's it. That is it. Jesus is our portion. Can you say it and stake your life on it? Listen, many people are gone from the church. They're gone. One thing COVID did was take away the consumerist Christians. I'm not talking about disciples of Jesus Christ. You cannot take them away. You can throw anything at them. They're not going anywhere. I'm talking about consumerist Christians. Christians that sipped on Jesus but got drunk on the world. They're gone. They're gone. The church was never their family of faith. The blood-bought bride of Christ. It was never that. It was just a thing. It was an event. It was a casual habit. And over last year, oh man, there's so many new habits they've made. When they touch rock bottom in life, the Lord is my portion, is just not what they stand on. What about you though? Where are you in your devotion to Jesus? You cannot be in the same place you were last year. Definitely not. Too much has happened in the last year. Can you say now where God has brought you, where you are today? Yes, the Lord is my portion. That's what my soul says. Is this whom you worship? The one who took your transgressions and iniquities and sins to set you free? Listen, do you know that Jesus felt the rod of wrath at the shepherd's hand? Do you know that the jailer fastened him to a cross and he could not escape? Do you know that the predator tore his back to shreds? Do you know that the skilled hunter aimed his bow at him, pierced him in the side with a spear of his wrath? Do you know this? All the things that Jerusalem faced, horrible as they were, and they were finite, but Christ faced the infinite wrath of God upon his very person to take for us the punishment. Is that whom you follow? Is that whom you believe? To set us free. That's why he did it. Listen, God will by no means clear the guilty. He will not clear the guilty. Do you know that you're guilty? If you don't know the depth of what's wrong with you, I'm so glad that you're here. Keep coming so you can learn. But if you know the depth of what's wrong with you, and yet you know that God has loved you and received you and will never turn you away and will never turn against you in wrath ever, then you know that his holy wrath must have fallen on someone because he cannot clear the guilty. And you know that someone is Jesus Christ. And so...
as we take the communion, do you know, do you, do you come together with God's people to take the bread, to drink the cup, knowing that for Jesus, the cup was bitter and he died alone. Ponder these things as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We give you thanks for our Savior who came to die, to bear the judgment, the penalty for our transgressions, iniquities, and sins so that your steadfast love could flow to us for all eternity. We will never know you as a shepherd whose anger must be kindled against us. Or the jailer who will not hear our prayers, the walls are so thick. Or the predator who turns us and tears us to pieces. Or the hunter who hunts us down, pierces us with the arrows of his quiver. Jesus experienced that for us. And we praise you for it and we bless you, God. We pray that as we meditate on his body, on his blood, that we would confess our sins to you, God, how we've made other things our portion. But that we would come back anew and confess and believe that your mercies are new every morning and that you wash us by his blood. We love you. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.